your copy of the scriptures, let me encourage you to turn to Leviticus chapter 4. Leviticus chapter 4. We're going to be focusing this morning on verses 1 through 12 of Leviticus chapter 4. As we come to the fourth chapter of this unique, fascinating, interesting book, we come to a spot where things sound a lot alike to what we've already read, but things are starting to change as well. Here's what I mean. As we've walked through the first three chapters, so far we've seen three offerings, two of which were animal sacrifices, and one of which was a sacrifice, an offering from the fruit of the ground, if you will. So we saw the burnt offering in chapter 1, where the entire offering was offered up to the Lord. The only portion that wasn't offered was the skin of that animal. And that, as we will read later, is reserved for the priest who offered the the offering on the altar. If we were to summarize in one word what the burnt offering represented, that would be perhaps an offering of dedication, an expression of dedication of one's self to the Lord. Now, we also read, and we, we spent a fair bit of time on this, in chapter 1 that that offering was for the atonement of the offerer. And we talked about how that is for the purpose of addressing both the guilt and the pollution of sin. Then, in chapter 2, we saw the grain offering. Again, the offering of the fruit of the ground. If we were to summarize in one word what this offering signified, I think we could use the word thanksgiving or thankfulness. Thankfulness for what God had provided to the offerer. The third offering, do you remember what that third offering was? This was last week. Peace, the peace offering. Here, this offering, again, an animal sacrifice, was an offering in a word of fellowship, a celebration of fellowship with God. All of these offerings were commanded at different times as we read elsewhere in the scriptures. We're not told in Leviticus 1, 2, or 3 about the specific requirements for when these offerings would have been offered. But we read elsewhere God commanding his people to give these particular offerings. So for example, the burnt offering. The burnt offering was the offering of all offerings. It's the offering that occurs most often when you're reading the Old Testament it, it occurs over 200 times across the Old Testament scriptures, this burnt offering. It was required to be offered on behalf of the congregation every morning and every evening. And then there were other times, of course, that it would be offered as well at festivals and, and other times. The grain offering also required at various times. It was often offered at the same time as the burnt offering. It was associated with that burnt offering in its offering. The peace offering. The peace offering was required at the completion of the Nazarite vow. You can read about the, the Nazarite vow in, in Numbers chapter 6, where an Israelite would set himself apart for a period of time for devotion to the Lord. And at the completion of that time of separation, a peace offering, a celebration of fellowship would be offered along with other offerings. But these offerings also, the burnt, the grain, and the peace offering, 
could just be offered by the offer whenever he so, so chose. He wanted to offer a gift to the Lord, and he could come and offer one of these three offerings. But as we come to Leviticus 4, things begin to change. Read with me Leviticus 4, 1 through 12. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about the things not to be done and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering, but the skin of the bull and all its flesh with its head, its legs, its entrails, and its dung, all the rest of the bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place to the ash heap and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. Now, the instructions for this particular offering actually continue all the way down through chapter 5, verse 13. And we will come back to the rest of these requirements next week. For this morning, we are going to focus here on orienting ourselves a bit to this particular offering and the specific instance, the first instance which we are told which the Israelites were told, this offering must be offered. Now, as we think about this offering, and consistent with what we've been thinking about in the other Levitical sacrifices, the good news of this particular offering, there are three things that we need to pause and think about in order to hear the good news of the sin offering. The first is some vocabulary. We're pausing and not going too, too far this morning because we need to get some vocabulary straight in our minds because there are some things that come up in this offering that we need to pause and consider. We're going to consider for whom this first requirement is given, the priest specifically the high priest. And then lastly, the pointers. What does this sin offering for the priest point us in the 21st century to? So these are the things that we're going to consider as we try to hear, by God's grace, the good news of this sin offering. So as we think about vocabulary or words or definitions, the first one we need to pause and think about is this word sin. Because it seems a little odd, doesn't it? That this offering would be named the sin offering? What about that burnt offering? It was offered to make atonement. Doesn't that have anything to do with sin? Well, yes, it does. Significantly. And what about the peace offering? Peace is only realized when the sin that separates a holy God and the worshiper is addressed. Doesn't the peace offering have anything to do with sin? Well, yes, it does. It's 
Specifically, the celebration that the sin has been addressed and that there is peace and harmony between the worshiper and his God. So what about this offering? This, as it's translated in many of our Bibles, the sin offering. Well, first, that word sin. That word sin. In Scripture, in the Old Testament in particular, there are three primary words, not the only words, but there are three primary words that deal with or describe our sin. We read in three places all three of these words cluster clustered together. One is at the Day of Atonement. Turn to Leviticus chapter 16. In no small respect, the sin offering that we're reading about today is preparing the way for the Day of Atonement because the sin offering played a significant part in the offerings of that day. But notice, as the Lord is giving to Moses the requirements of that day, down in verse 20 of Leviticus 16. And when he, that is the high priest, has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. There are those words, iniquities, transgressions, and sins. We also hear these words clustered together. I will just read these. You can note them down in Psalm 32 and in Psalm 51. In Psalm 32, we read that great celebration. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And then again in Psalm 51, as David expresses his prayer of confession in the wake of his sin and the confrontation by Nathan of his sin with regard to Bathsheba, David writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. There's one word. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Again, transgressions, iniquity, and sin. All of these words have slightly different emphases. So that word iniquity, the late pastor James Boyce writes in his commentary on Psalm 32, which I just read the first two verses of, about iniquity, he says, this word describes sin in relation to ourselves. That is, it is a corruption or twisting of right standards as well as of our own beings. So that word iniquity points in part at least to the fact that sin internally distorts us, twists us. There is no aspect of our being that is not impacted by sin. One of the fancy terms, if you're, if you're curious, if you're taking notes, for this aspect of sin and its effects is what's referred to as the noetic effects of the fall. Now, if your eyes have just glazed over, you can wake back up, okay? All that means is, is that sin affects how we think. Sin affects how we view things, how we interpret the world. Sin affects us at our deepest core. And this word iniquity points to that internal distortion of sin. What about that word transgression? Again, going back to voice, 
He observes that this word, transgression, describes sin in view of our relationship to God. So sin distorts ourselves, but sin even more significantly has a consequence in our relationship with God. And that is, with transgression, we are pointed to the fact that our sin is an expression of rebellion against God. That we, want, we do not want God to be king over us. We would be fine to be our own kings and queens. Thank you very much. Transgression, we rebel against God. And then that word sin. That word sin. This word describes sin in relation to the divine law. We fall short of it and are condemned by it. Or, as you have probably heard, this word can point to the archer as he shoots his arrow and he misses the mark. That's what this word is pointing to. We miss the mark of God's standards expressed in his law. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, these three words and what they represent, iniquity, transgression, sin, they're all bound up together, aren't they? Because the internal distortion of our sin, referenced by iniquity, what does that lead us to do? It leads us to fall short of the divine standards. That word sin. We miss the mark of God's expectation for us because of the internal effect of sin and it is coming out in our lives and are not living up to God's requirements, which is an act of rebellion against one holy living God. These three words, we shouldn't overly press them, I don't think, as we come across them in Scripture. It's helpful to think about these distinctions, but we shouldn't act as if or read as if they're siloed, because even in the psalm passages that we read, they're, they're used in parallel with one another. But I draw them out here as we come to this sin offering to point to this reality. Sin is no simple thing. Sin is not a small problem. Sin affects everything. Sin affects everything. Everything about me and about you. And these three words all together point to the complex dynamic of sin, which also points us to something else. And one of the reasons why I wanted us to walk through this book of Leviticus The multiple offerings that are required to address our sin problem also point to the complexity, the extent of our sin problem. God doesn't just say to the Israelites, guys, gals, there's this issue. It's sin. Just Offer something up, and it'll be okay, and that'll be that, and we'll move on. No, God is very specific in his requirements for this complex, comprehensive issue that affects us all. So that there are a variety of offerings that must be offered on an ongoing basis in order to appropriately deal with the sin that afflicts God's people so that the holy God 
might dwell amongst an unholy people. All of these offerings, all of these offerings, as one commentator put it, these were not intended, and this comes into the forefront, specifically in what is labeled here the sin offering. This offering was not intended to protect God from the sin of the people. Friends, these sacrifices were intended by God's grace to protect a sinful nation from a holy God whose holiness would consume them if it were not restrained. But not only as we think about vocabulary, not only do we need to think about sin and the complexity of sin as we approach this new category of offering, but we also need to pause and think for a moment about another set of categories that we will come to over and over and over throughout the book of Leviticus. And that is categories of people's places and things. Categories of people, places, and things. If you're following along, you could turn over, if you'd like, to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10. After two of Aaron's sons have been consumed by the holy wrath of God, because they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, we read in, beginning in verse 8, And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations." You are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So here we are given in broad strokes two of the primary functions of the priest. To teach the law to the people, verse 11, but also to help the people distinguish between what is holy and common, what is clean and unclean. And I think it's helpful for us to pause in our way through Leviticus and think through these categories because they do impact how we understand what's happening with the sin offering. The, that first collection, that first pair, holy and common, all things, all things can be divided, could be divided in the Jewish mindset in these two categories, holy and common. What is holy? Well, holy and those things that are holy begin with God himself. The one about whom we read in Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who is most holy. Gordon Winneman, his commentary on Leviticus, observes this about this category of holy. Holiness characterizes God himself and all that belongs to him. Be holy, for I am holy. That thematic refrain that occurs multiple times throughout the book of Leviticus. This is the call of Leviticus to be holy for God's people, to be holy, to live out holiness. And why should they live as a holy people? Because their God is the holy God. Be holy, for I am holy. Holiness is intrinsic, Wenham writes, to God's character. What does it mean for God to be holy? Well, in part, it means that he is separate. He is distinct. He is unique from everything else that is. And how is it that God is unique from everything else that is? Well, 
One way He is unique is that He is divine and nothing else is. But He is also unique in that He is Creator. Our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Creator. Everything else, everything else, creation. God is distinct in that He is Creator. Everything else is creation. And His holiness is this distinction in part. God's holiness is expressed in that He is distinct from sin. He is without sin. He is sinless. He cannot abide by sin, which is why these sacrifices must be offered on an ongoing basis, lest the holiness of God consume His people. But it is not just God who is holy. But anything that is separated or devoted to Him for worship of Him is also holy. Because it has been taken out of all of creation that is common and moved over into the category of holy. Separated, distinct for the worship of of God. So for example, the tabernacle and its equipment, the tabernacle where these sacrifices are taking place, right? The tabernacle. It is described as holy. Exodus 40 verse 9, then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. It was built. It wasn't holy yet. It was still part of that common. It had to be set apart for the worship of God. But once it was set apart, it was distinct. It was holy. The priests are holy, set apart for the Lord. Leviticus 21, 1 and verse 6. And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God. For they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy. The priests set apart for service of God in the tabernacle on behalf of the people of God. They are set apart. They are distinct from the community and they are holy. But in a very real sense, all of Israel was a holy people, a holy nation. Remember, as the people are preparing to receive the word from God, the commands from God there at Sinai after they have been brought out from Egypt, this is what God tells them is going to happen if they set themselves apart. Exodus 19, 5-6 Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. All that is common is the Lord's, we could say. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel, God said to Moses. And so, the tabernacle, holy. The priests, holy. The nation of Israel, intended among the nations to be holy. Well, the pair back in Leviticus 10.10 was distinguishing between the holy and the common. If it wasn't holy, it was common. This was the baseline for everything. Some being taken out of what was common and devoted to the Lord. The question that comes from this is, how does that movement happen? How does the movement from what is common in creation to what is set apart for the purposes of God happen? Follow along in Leviticus chapter 8. We're not going to read all of it. 
But here we see where Aaron and his sons are set apart out of the common for service to the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, take Aaron and his sons with him and the garments and the anointing oil and the bull of the sin offering and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then notice, jump down after Aaron is clothed, verse 10, then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them, and he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering and he killed it, and Moses took the blood, and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar, and he goes on. What was required to be done for the priests to be set apart for service to the Lord, out of the common to the holy? What was required to be offered? A sin offering. This very offering that we come to in Leviticus 4. But back in Leviticus 10, so that takes care of holy and common. But then there's this other category or this pair of categories. Distinguishing between the unclean and the clean. Here's a way that we can think about this. First of all, let's, let's say what clean and unclean is not. This does not have to do with Lysol wipes, with bleach, with hand sanitizer, with any other form of cleaning things that we would try and do in this day and age. Though not entirely unrelated, that's not the emphasis. Instead, this is the emphasis of the language of clean and unclean. Mark Dever puts it this way. Cleanness can be envisioned as a big circle with almost everything in creation in it. Some things were always outside the circle. Some animals and behaviors and so forth. Sometimes actions pushed a person that was inside that clean boundary outside. Sometimes those things were sinful. Sometimes the things that pushed someone outside of the boundary of clean to unclean was just things that happened in the course of normal life. So for example, we read in Leviticus 12 that when a woman gives birth, would give birth to a child in Israel. For a period of days, she would be unclean as a result of the birthing process. Is that because there's something wrong with give, giving birth to children? Absolutely not. They are a gift from the Lord. But we do read in Genesis 3 that the consequence of Sin in this world touches even the birthing process. So that there is a way in which, when the woman gave birth, that for a period she would become unclean. Not because there was anything intrinsically wrong or sinful in that process, but just as a result of living in a fallen world. Sometimes these actions, just in the course of normal life, pushed a person outside the circle, both Sinful and just normal course of life activities, redemption or purification could be made to bring things back in the circle of cleanliness. So we have the holy and the common. We have within that category, we have the clean and then we have the unclean. 
Well, what was required? Well, in order to move something from the common to the holy, there was this setting apart that had to be done in moving something that had become unclean back into the category of clean, there was a purification that was required. There was a de-sinning or a de-sinning from the effects of sin, if you will, that was required. And this was the function of the sin offering. To purify from the effects of sin, either the direct or the indirect effects of sin. We read about it with a person who had a leprous disease. Before they came back into the camp and were pronounced finally and fully clean, they had to go through a process of purification. Part of that was this sin offering. Back in the early days of... COVID. People trying to still sort out what, what is this virus? What is this thing that we are dealing with? Many people would purify packages by letting them sit in a space for a period of time so that the effects of that virus wouldn't come into their house. Or you had healthcare workers and others who would go through a process of cleansing from the stain of the virus before they would re-engage with others. That's something like what is going on with this sin offering, but not exactly. Not exactly. Because what, in that process of cleansing packages or washing your hands, you're trying to get that dirt off because you don't want to be harmed by that dirt, by that virus, by that contagion. point of this offering is not so much about that contagion of sin and its effects, but it is about keeping the offerer pure and safe from something wholly good, wholly good that will consume them the holiness of God, if the contagion is not addressed, if sin is not addressed, so that the sin offering is offered for the purpose of purification, of purifying the sinner, of purifying the space where God dwells, so that the offer so that the people would not be consumed by the holiness of God. Which brings us to, these, these last two will be brief. Which brings us to the priest. As you work your way through Leviticus chapter 4 and on into chapter 5, you'll notice that there are a variety of different requirements depending on who the sin offering is being offered for. And the first one addressed is offered for the priest, the high priest. Why? Why is the high priest addressed? We're given two groups of signals about why the high priest needed to be addressed here. Notice in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 3. If it is the anointed or the high priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, 
Then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed. And it goes on. Why is it that the, the priests, the high priest sins needed to be dealt with first? Because he as the people's representative before a holy God, if he committed one of the sins required by or requiring this offering, his sin didn't just affect him. The whole team got penalized. It affected everybody. And so an offering needed to be offered, not just for the priest, but because his sin affected the whole people. There was, in a sense, an uncleanness that settled on all of them because of his sin. But we're also given a signal about the weight of the priest's sin by the animal that is offered and what is done with the blood. What is the animal that's offered? It's a bull, the most expensive of all the offerings. If the high priest sinned requiring the sin offering in this way, only the best of the best, only the most expensive, because he represented the entire community, must be offered. But also what is done with that blood, it is collected and it is taken inside that holy tent. It's not just left and addressed outside the tent, but because he would go and represent the people before the face of God, that blood had to be taken into and put on the horns of the altar of incense that was there in front of the holy of holies. Here, we have as he would enter into laser pointers going out, so I apologize about that. The, the priest there standing in front, he would go inside the holy place and that altar right there in front of the curtain inside, just in front of the holy of holies or the most holy place. He would go in and put the blood of this sin offering on that altar because of the contagion of his sin affecting up into the very presence of God himself because of his responsibility. But then also, not only the animal, the cost of the animal, what is done with the blood, but what is done with the rest of the animal itself. And specifically, down in verse 11, but the skin of the bull and all its flesh with its head, its legs, its entrails, and its dung, all the rest of the bull, he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place, to the ash heap, and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. None of this animal was to be preserved. Not the skin for him, not the, some of the meat for him, which in some of the other sin offerings, which we will read about next week, he could partake. But in this, because it was for his sin, he could have no benefit. The nation could have no benefit. Because his sin as the representative of the people before a holy God was that significant. Which brings us to the pointers. What does this point us to? And we'll continue to unpack some of the pointers as we work through some of the rest of the sin offerings next week. But two things in particular that this Sin offering or purification offering for the high priest points us to. And that is the impact of leaders and their sin. This man's sin affected everyone. It wasn't contained to himself. And the New Testament picks up on this same idea. Now, I don't have time to develop this, so I, I just have to be brief, and we can talk more about this later if you have questions. But there are some traditions that use the term priest to refer to an office or function in the church that, that really, from the New Testament, should be called a pastor. Okay, It's a 
It's a poor appropriation of Old Testament language and just confuses things. But, but, nevertheless, the New Testament does put a priority on the leaders of a congregation and how they live their lives and its effect on the entire congregation. You can note down Hebrews 13, 17, if you'd like to read that. Two other passages that I will read quickly. James 3, 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. There is a greater standard that those who teach are to be held up to. And then also 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul warns Timothy. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Why? Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Your life and your teaching has consequence for those whom you lead, whom you serve. We see this same idea from the sin offering, and it's carried over here. This applies to the leaders of a congregation. It also applies to all of us. As we are all, we read in 1 Peter 2, set apart as God's holy people. But in particular, the life, the sin of the leaders of a congregation, and here specifically, the pastors, has consequences for the people of the congregation. So that, as I stand before you this morning, this isn't confession time, but it is a plea. It is a plea for you to pray for me. Because my life affects every one of you. And I know many of you faithfully pray for me because you mention it from time to time. And I am so grateful for that. But I would just ask you, in light of what this passage points us to, I would plead with you, if for no, reason, oh, no other reason than for your own good, do it selfishly if you need to. But pray for me as your pastor. But this passage not only points us to leaders of congregations, this passage points us to the glorious truth that we have a great high priest who never needed to offer this sin offering for his own sin. Hebrews chapter 7. If you want to read more on this, you can read Hebrews 9, 11 through the rest of the chapter. We're not going to read that this morning. We'll have chances later to read that. You can read that for yourself. But notice Hebrews 7, verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Friends, we have a great high priest in the Lord Jesus Christ who never needed to offer this sin offering for himself because he had no sin that needed to be dealt with. 
which means that in his humanity, he could stand in the place of one of us. But in his divinity, he could stand in the place of all of us. So that today, if you don't know this great high priest by faith, the stain of sin, the weight of sin, the consequence of sin remains on you. But if you will come to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, then you can know the purification that Jesus has made for sinners like you and me. And if you're here this morning and you know Christ by faith, rejoice that we have this high priest. Rejoice that we have one who suffered in our place, not because we were without sin, but while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you, Father, that in your word, in some ways it feels like we have just scratched the surface, in some ways it feels like we have drilled down into depths. But we thank you, Father, that your word exposes to us the extent of our sin problem. Thank you, Father, that in these offerings, we're pointed to general coverings for sin. We're also pointed to specific purification for specific instances of sin. And Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ, in his one perfect sacrifice, addresses the entirety of our sin problem. Help us, Father, today. Help us this week to rejoice in the sin offering, the purification offering of Christ that has been made for us. And Father, if there are any with us today or who are hearing this message who do not know the love and forgiveness and mercy of the sacrifice of Christ, we pray that today would be the day of their salvation, that they would turn from sin and that they would go to Christ and know the purification that he provides for sinners like each of us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.